Good morning, PMC Church family. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Um, I have, I'm just so full of thanks. Uh, today is actually an amazing day. It's a high Sabbath for our family. I found out this morning, not only am I praying, uh, preaching at PMC, my sister-in-law, Loretta, my husband's sister, is preaching at her church, and a good friend, we call ourselves the sisters, it's Michelle uh, Bakioki, her sister, Nancy Cassell, is preaching at her church on the Holy Spirit. So we don't preach, like this is very unusual. Uh, but I do have to say, Pastor Dwight, you were talking about John Luca, seeing him grow, grow up, and it's interesting that when you um, asked me to preach, I said to him, I said, Dwight asked me to preach, and John Luca said, it's about time because, no, because apparently he preached here when he was 10 years old. It was a Pathfinder Sabbath, but now I'm finally catching up. So uh, thank you for the opportunity to get even, so to speak. Um, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to, to bless our time together. Gracious Father, thank you so much for being a giving God, the one from whom all blessings flow to us, the giver of good gifts. Please be with my words today. Please be with each heart Make it receptive to the message that you want. Tailor the message to each situation, each burden, each family. And Lord, may we leave here knowing you better and being a little closer to reflecting the beautiful image of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, show of hands, I would like to know how many of you were here on that solemn Sabbath day when Pastor Dwight announced that the countdown has begun to the final, the 39th, going on the 40th year of his time together with us here at PMC. How many of you were here? Then you saw this picture, right? This is, this is beautiful. It was 1983, is that correct? With Karen and Kirk, I believe. So this is very special to me because when I heard this, my heart was heavy He had, among other things, when he preached that Sabbath, he had a special prayer that he said it was going on 40 years, and this prayer was not answered. This is what he said. He said, for 39 years, I have prayed this prayer off and on. I have prayed for God to send a mighty spiritual revival to Andrews University, Andrews Academy, Ruth Murdoch Elementary School, and the Pioneer Memorial Church. I have wondered, am I not praying enough? Are there not enough of us praying? So after hearing this, I, of course, you know, having been here, so this is, this is me. This is the same year that Pastor Dwight started here. Our family had been here. Actually, I preceded Dwight. I was here before. Like, there was a time, you know, we can't imagine a time before Pastor Dwight. But I was here when I was six. Here I'm about, I guess, ten, um, for my dad to do his studies at the seminary. And we were just about to leave, and my mom said, hey, let's go around and take pictures because we will never see the States again, and we will never see snow again. And if only I was so lucky, not for here, of course, but the snow, because I'm pretty sure this is April, because this is Michigan, and we know that the snows don't leave until May. So, uh, and then of course, PMC has a special place in my heart, because this is where Gianluca and I got married, and this is where our children also, uh, we have three kids, 17, 19, and 23. Isabella, my daughter, is here. Where are you, Isabella? Anyway, she's here somewhere. She's not going to raise her hand because that's just not her style. So, uh, yes, this this is a special church. And so this this question, why has this spiritual revival, why has this prayer not been answered? And as I was thinking about the reasons why this could be, um, I thought there's one thing 
that I have heard in the past 10 years that I have been here and my husband has been here raising our kids, attending Ruth Murdoch as we did when we were kids, attending the academy as we did when we were kids, and now coming to the Andrews University as I did, we are hearing stories of things that we just never thought would happen. And it is blowing our minds. The devil is having a heyday with our kids, and we need to do something about it. So the answer to why we haven't seen the spiritual revival is because we have impurity in the church, and only the pure in heart will see the Lord. This is, this is the theme that we have. So the question is, what can we do about it? In our family, one of the things that we have uh, desired to do... Hello, can you hear me? Is that better? There was a flashing red light that the point... This is very unusual to me. Is that better? Can you hear me? Sorry. Sorry, technical difficulties. Can you, can you hear me? The two hours that Toucan Sunny suggested, hopefully we're not going to get to that. We don't want to have a lag time. Um, so the, the, the thing that we have tried to do in our family time is we have, since the kids were little, we have incorporated family worship, morning and evening. This was non-negotiable. Of course, then they're teenagers, and they're off in the morning, and it's hard to correspond to our schedules. But evening time, we come together to pray, to ask the Lord to forgive our sins, to ask the Lord to cleanse our hearts, and to ask the Lord to help us with whatever we're struggling. The other thing we have done is that we have tried to model purity. So years ago... Um, uh, one of the things that really impacted me when I was growing up uh, was this was before John Luke I see him up on the balcony. Um, I was dating another one, another guy from Argentina, and he came to visit me that summer. And we were sitting down and we were watching a show called Seinfeld. Now, this was a show that uh, had the title called The Wager. And in it, the four main characters were trying to see who could go the longest being the master of their domain. Now, this was a euphemism for not masturbating. So we were watching. We had never run across anything like that. And a few minutes into the show, my boyfriend gets up. He walks up to the TV. He turns it off. And he says, we're not watching that show anymore. We're not watching it. And I was blown away because I'd never seen anybody do that. I'd never seen anyone stand up to something that was so pervasive and everybody approved of and say, that's not okay. We're not doing this. And of course, it didn't work out with him, but uh, with Gianluca, it's been the same thing. If there's a show and we're watching it, we're starting a movie, and there's something in it, we get up, we turn it off, and we say, kids, that's not, that's not okay. So trying to model moral purity in the home. Also, speaking as often as we can, speaking up about these things, um, it's difficult conversation. It's, it's not genteel. It's not comfortable. Frankly, I don't like preaching the sermon. Like, it needs to be preached, but this is not a comfortable thing to talk about. But if we don't talk about it, Satan's going to take over. I'm telling you, I want to go to some quotes here. Let's, let's get this going. So we are the church. The Greek for church is ekklesia, ek, out, kalos, called. We are the called out ones. Called out from what? Called out from Babylon. So Babylon is a system. It was the first rival enemy to God and to his law. And what Babylon said is we can do whatever we want and still have religion. Like, we're okay. We can go through the formalities of religion and still indulge the desires of the flesh and the selfish nature. And that is not what we're supposed to do. But it's hard to call things out. The greatest moral reprover that I have ever read or come across is Ellen G. White. She is my hero. 
she has, she was shy. Uh, those of you who know her story, like she didn't want to speak. She was very quiet, unobtrusive. And the Lord asked her to share messages with the church, cutting messages, difficult messages. And at first she's like, Lord, I can't do this. And the Lord was not pleased. We cannot shirk back. These are difficult conversations, but we have to step up to the plate. We have to speak out for our children, for our futures. This is, this is non-negotiable. We cannot, we cannot step down. So this is what Ellen White says, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. She says, the greatest want in the world is the want of parents. Parents who will not fear to call sin by its right name. Parents who will stand for the right, though the heavens fall. And then this is what she says. She actually wrote an entire book on the issue of pornography and what she calls the solitary vice. The book is called A Solemn Appeal to Mothers. She also wrote in her book, uh, Child Guidance, she wrote five chapters. She devotes five entire chapters to talking about this solitary vice and how it's destroying physically, emotionally, cognitively in every area. She says, Mom, let's think about this rationally, what it's doing to our children and to our future as a church. And so this is what she says in Child Guidance. Uh, I have, if anyone's interested, I have the actual uh, numbers, page numbers. It's the special work of Satan. Licentiousness is the sin of this age. Never, and remember, she's writing in the 1800s. Never did vice lift its deformed head with such boldness as now. Seriously. Like when I read this, I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. What about the antediluvians? What about Sodom and Gomorrah? What about, what about, you know? But the issue is we have in our hands access our children. Jaluk and I said we will, our kids will never, back in the day when we actually had box TVs, right? You guys remember those days? Our kids, we knew about these spoiled brats who had TV in their rooms and we said our kids will never have a TV in their room, bottom line. Well, this shows up and of course now they've got not just a TV but they have access to all kinds of things that we never even thought were possible, right? Uh, so Ellen White, vision drives desire. What you see with your eyes is going to drive what you want to consume. This is the whole ideology behind advertising. If you watch a show, a commercial that pops up and there's a juicy steak, you start salivating. I remember my daughter, uh, my middle daughter, who's actually studying at Southern, when she was two years old, I had baked some cookies. And she says, Mama, she already had some, so we were done. There were no more cookies. No more cookies. And she said, Mama, she says, um... I would like another cookie. Like she was looking at the cookies and I said, sorry, we're done. She says, no, 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 I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to eat it. I just want to hold it. (laughs) I was like, yeah, that's not going to last very long. And I feel like sometimes that's what we do. We watch certain things, entertainment, and we say, we're not actually going to eat it. We're just going to hold it. But there is no distinction. The Bible says that by beholding, we become changed. We consume by the, by the eyes. And so we have to be very careful what we consume. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. So this is, now we're going to do a little word study. I love word studies. I love Greek. Um, and so here we go with the word epithumia. In 1 John 2.15, it says, For the lust epithumia of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So now we see a distinction between what the eye sees, that's of the world, and what the Father wants. So how do we reconcile this? Matthew 5.27 says, I tell you, this is Jesus himself. He says on the Sermon on the Mount, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust, epithumia, 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you can't just hold the woman in your eyes because you're going to start to salivate, right? That's not okay. Jesus says, you've committed adultery. And then he says, cut off your hand. Like right after that, he says, take out your eye, cut out your hand, because it's better for you to get into heaven without the appendage than to be thrown into hell because you think this is okay. But now this is what's fascinating. Watch this. So the same word, epithumia, depending on the context. So the word is basically desire, right? Sometimes it's translated lust, and sometimes it's translated yearning or longing. So here we see in 2 Corinthians 5.2, Paul says, For indeed in this tent we groan, a longing, epithumia, to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. So we want to go to heaven. We sense the pull down of the desires of the flesh and the things that are weighing on us. And so he says, we want to be freed from this. This is also Romans 7, right? And then Luke 22, Jesus himself, just before the final supper, he says, with great desire, I have desired, epithumia epithumesa, to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Now, why? Why was this so important? Because this was the night, the very night that he was going to give the most special message to his disciples. This is John chapter 13 to chapter 17, five chapters of Jesus's most beautiful revelation of his love, what he was going to do, his sacrifice for his disciples that day, his great longing. This is something we have to understand is that the yearning of God, his great desire, desire that we can't begin to understand is to be united with each one of us, to give us amazing, amazing, beautiful spiritual blessings and physical blessings, sensual even blessings, things that delight the tongue and delight the eyes. But we have to be willing to go through the cross first. And that was the message that he gave his disciples on that, that night. And that was the great longing. So it's not with great lust I have lusted, right? Because it's the desire that leads us heavenward. John 10.10 is such a great text because it puts together the two ways, the way of the world and the way of salvation. The thief, this is Satan, came to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, Jesus said, have come to, that you might have life and have it in abundance. He's talking about pleasure, He wants to give us great pleasure, pleasure that we cannot begin to conceive, pleasure that would blow our mind. And Satan is limiting it to this tiny little act called sex and sexual gratification, which is, seriously, guys, there's nothing there. I mean, it's the type of of, of satisfaction he's offering you. Here, let's see if, if I have Huberman here. Okay, so desire bent upward to God, desire bent downward to self. One leads to happiness and one leads to destruction and eternal loss. This is the quote I wanted, Andrew Huberman. So Andrew Huberman is um, a neurobiologist from Stanford. He has a podcast that Gianluca and I like to listen to called The Huberman Lab, where he talks about different things to do to help the mind function optimally. And what he says is addiction is the progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. But happiness is the progressive expansion of the things that bring you pleasure. The former, addiction, happens passively. The latter, happiness, takes work. Friends, Satan doesn't want you to put forth effort. He wants you to sit back and get lulled with the tide of of the environment that we're in, of the milieu, of the culture, of the mentality. And if we don't fight the tide, we're going to get swept away. So as parents, this is an appeal to parents, we cannot let down the guard. And I will say here, because we have way more parents, I think there were like three or four times more kids in this, uh, this service than in the morning service. If you haven't read... Child Guidance and Adventist Home, if you're a parent or thinking of ever becoming a parent, 
You need to know the responsibility. Maybe after reading that, you'll be like, maybe I'll stay single, or maybe I'm not going to have kids, because the responsibility is not to be taken lightly. It is eter- God is going to ask us, when we step into the pearly gates, he's going to say, where are the children I gave you? Did you speak up? I'm not going to speak from heaven and say, stop watching that. I gave you that responsibility. You're supposed to step up to the plate and speak for me. Everything is in the Bible. We have the Bible friends and we have Ellen White, right? This is with Lazarus. He says, oh Lord, please don't, don't tell my brothers so that they won't come to hell. Remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Please send, send someone from the dead to go. It's like, no, no, no. They have the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. If they're not listening to that, if they're not reading that, and changing their lives and purifying their lives based on what I've given you, we are purified by the word, then even if one rises from the dead, they will not believe. Friends, parents, we need to step up to the plate. So Proverbs 29, 18, I love because it says, without vision, and another uh, version says, people perish. Here it says, people abandon restraint, which is the same concept. We perish when we don't have restraint, when we don't have self-control. This is what Sammy, the toucan, was trying to say, Right? You need to postpone present pleasure for future gain. And this takes effort and it takes work. But every time that you do it, you sense God's pleasure. Every time that you refuse doing something that will deaden your conscience, that will deaden your mind, that will deaden your connection with God, you sense God's pleasure. You need to sense God's pleasure in you because he loves you and he's cheering you on. There's a passage, I think it's uh, Testimony 7, page 17. I was reading it last night or the day before. And she says that the weakest, um, hold on, there's two that I'm thinking of and I didn't write it down, but basically that God will empty all of heaven rather than let one be, be t- taken in with temptation. He will send every angel to help you overcome. And then we need to know that when we overcome every thought, Ellen White says, that is evil, that we reign in, that is lustful, that we reign in. Nobody sees the great battle with self that we've had but Christ sees the battle and he rejoices in us. He says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. If we confess Jesus by speaking up or by doing what is right, we testify to him and then he will, he will stand up for us in the judgment and we will have an advocate with the father. But if we don't speak up, we will not have an advocate. In, in, um, in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, and I'm paraphrasing here, right? We can rightly talk, this is, <clears throat> uh, this is a little paraphrase getting to that. We may rightly talk of justice, inclusion, forgiveness, and service. Rightly so, those things are important. But scripture presents purity as the foundation of spirituality. Many, and this is, this is Matthew 7, many will come to Jesus on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do great acts of social service? Didn't we like feed the widows? Didn't we have great philanthropy? Didn't we march on behalf of justice? And Jesus will say, but you didn't let me in to purify your heart. No one gets in here who does not have a pure heart. Only the pure in heart can see my face. And he will turn to them sadly and say, depart. And so we need to speak up. Purity is foundational. So to, uh, to have the vision, right? So I didn't explain, but the vision, the, 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 the Hebrew word there is chazon, which means the vision given specifically to, pro- to prophets, like in Daniel. But it just means generally also revelation. We need to have the revelation of Jesus, which is obviously the book of, of Revelation, which is called the revelation of Jesus. But it extends to the beginning of scripture. 
John uh, chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, both of those talk about Jesus being the creator of the worlds. So let's spend some time here thinking about Jesus and how he wants to purify our hearts and to restore us. So beginning at creation, image and identity, how do we identify? To whom do we belong? Right? This is what Jesus does. Scholars have taken several different perspectives on what the uh, Imago Dei, the image of God, means, right? He creates man in his image, male and female, he creates them. And they've summarized it into three categories, structural, relational, and missional. So the first one, obviously, structural is just the physique, the physicality. To some degree, we resemble God the Father, God the Son. We, we have that similarity. Relational, I underline, because this is the crux of everything. Intimacy. God created us for intimacy. Intimacy with him, intimacy with each other. And this is what Satan wanted to attack because this is founded on love. And then, of course, based on that, the missional outpouring is going to be external to others to bless the world. However, after the fall, everything changes. The structural aspect starts to corrupt. No longer do they have the coverings of light on them. Relational destroyed completely. It's distorted. There's major fear base. They start blaming each other. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, hey, it's God's fault. Like, let's just do our own thing, right? I mean, that's what a lot of people do. They blame everything on God and just kind of pursue pleasure according to the dictates of their, of their own desires. And then finally, the, the mission becomes inward focus. So relational people are still seeking intimacy. They still want to have that sense of connection. And pornography does that. There is this one testimony I was reading about someone who was addicted to porn, and he was saying that he had such a sense of peace and belonging when he went to his grandma's house. He loved it. He felt so embraced and loved. And then she passed away, and he was torn, and he lost that sense of intimacy and protection and safety. And then he saw a magazine with a woman's image, unclothed, and he somehow felt something. It was similar, he said, but different. He sensed the intimacy was there. A sense of of desire was there. But it was not the same thing. It was a counterfeit. And so, friends, Satan is using this as a major counterfeit for the intimacy that God desires to have with us. So the way of restoration is twofold. First of all, he does it through uh, family analogy because family is essential. We've been wounded in families from a young age and we need to be restored through these images of family. First we have the image of adoption. So the image where God is a loving father and we are his children. Now this image uh, of the father to child uh, extends obviously to to everybody, right? If you've been wounded by your parents or you're a parent and have wounded your child, this is how you're restored. You reframe the perspective, you reframe the situation, seeing God is the one who heals, God is the one who blesses, God is the safe place, the one that you can go to. The second one is marriage. Here he uses the image of a loving husband to his wife. We see in the New Testament that it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And this is what we have throughout the Bible. So formality is repression. Many times in our homes, Ellen White says, home should be the purest, most wonderful type of heaven. He says, the emotion should be tenderly expressed instead of studiously repressed. 
When we don't have a safe place, when we don't have conversation, and we don't feel, our children don't feel comfortable sharing with us. My daughter is constantly, it's like, mom, what does this mean? And why does this happen? And mom, this, I mean, I know more than I want to know because both of my girls come and share what they hear, what they see, what's happening with their friends. And so for the last 10 years, purity has been the theme of my prayers. Purity for my daughters, son, purity for their friends, purity for the church, especially the young people, because Let's see if we can get to that. Yeah, so here we are. Those of you who attended the Purity Conference uh, two weeks ago would have seen this information. So as a child is developing, there's two things that control emotion, basically. One is the limbic system, and that's the seat of emotions, memory, and fear. And that's fully developed by age six. Six. So fear is the driving force trying to find a way to not be blamed. If you do something wrong, you're afraid you're you're going to get blamed, so you lie, you know, children lie, those kind of things. The prefrontal cortex, which is where you choose to make wise decisions, it's reason, willpower, self-control, impulse control, all of those things are in the frontal lobe, on your forehead. This doesn't develop until you're 25 to 30, which explains so much of your parent, right? Because as your kids are developing you sometimes see glimmers of adulthood, right? They're, they're practicing their instruments. They're doing things that are just, you're blown away. And then they do something really stupid and you're thinking, what is going on? Frontal lobe has not developed. This is our problem. This is the issue. But it calls for us as parents, as teachers, as educators to understand and have compassion with our students, to understand that they may have issues that they're still dealing with because inappropriate sexual behavior, we also learned at this conference, comes from adverse childhood events. So if somebody has had a negative childhood event that is emotional, negative emotional event, 97% of those will act out sexually. If you've had a sexual negative event, this is, this is not abuse, right? It can include abuse, but it's not abuse. It could be seeing pornography. That's a sexual assault. I'm sorry, when a child sees something, that's abusive, that's insulting, that slaps them across the face, and they have to reconfigure what the world means and what's going on and how they respond to this. So those kind of people that see or do that, they will act out. That's 81%. 81% of, of, of people that act out sexually um, have had sexual adverse effects, and 72 have had physical abuse or physical adverse effects. So again, when somebody comes to you and you don't judge, don't say, well, you, you have this sexual problem. Like, what's your problem? Like, get over it. We need to be compassionate. We need to be gentle. We need to pray diligently. And we need to encourage people to be comfortable sharing these things. I mean, this is common. Actually, well, I'm not going to go there. Uh, so Romans 8.15 is beautiful. It says, I have not given you a spirit of fear. This is how we now respond. He says, I have given you, leading to, to fear again, spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you received a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. We have a safe place, someone to go to who hears our petitions, he hears our prayers, he hears our pleas, and he's the only one who can do something about it. So now we enter the analogy of marriage. This is all over scripture. It begins in the book of Exodus. We're going to get to that in a minute. But here are some verses that talk about the, uh, specifically uh, bring out this analogy. Your maker is your husband. And in Jeremiah, I remember your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. New Testament. Second Corinthians, I promised you to one husband, says Paul, that I might present you a pure virgin to Christ. 
And then Revelation 19, he says, let us be glad for the marriage of the lamb has come and his, uh, and his wife has made herself ready. So, um, yeah, so this, this is the, uh, basically a, uh, a component of my master's thesis that I did. It was the Exodus Sanctuary Covenant Structure, and my thesis advisor, um, he was talking to me about bringing out this analogy. Because at one point I said, well, this is kind of like a proposal. He's like, well, you know, tease that out a little bit more. We need to get to the, where is the proposal? Where is the marriage? Is there an engagement? Is there like consummation of the marriage? Like what's going on here? So I, I did some digging and I came up with this, um, this development, which is very much marriage. Uh, Ellen White talks about it being the main image of God in the development, the revelation of his name. So in the second commandment, he says, for I, the Lord, am jealous, right? I am jealous for your love. And then after the reinstitution of the covenant, he says, no, 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 I'm not just a jealous God. My name, he says, my name is jealous because I have bought you. I have redeemed you. You are mine. So just quickly going through those, we have the proposal, which is when he comes up to the mountain and he says, if you will obey my commandments, you will be to me a special treasure on the whole earth. Um, Number two, consecration. The bride needs to make herself ready. She needs to purify herself from thoughts, beliefs that are not in keeping with God. And then third, after she has done that, God will speak. And here it's really important to understand this because many times we open up scripture and we just read it blanketly. But before we read scripture, before we open it up, we need to consecrate ourselves to God. We need to say, Lord, just a quick prayer to say, Lord, Help me, send your Holy Spirit to convict me that your word may purify my heart. That's all you need to do. And then you will have a teachable, humble attitude as you read scripture. Uh, number four, after, so number three, God descends on Mount Sinai and he says, what are the 10 promises? People call them commandments, but lo and behold, the grammatical structure is actually promises. You can also see them as commandments. They're two sides of the same coin, right? We, we gotta do it. This is God. We don't, we don't mess with God. But he says, I, I'm gonna do this through you. Like, I am the almighty God. If you will see my law as promises, I will fulfill this in your life. You won't want to have any other gods because you're going to see that I am so powerful and beautiful and wonderful. And he goes through all the commandments and makes them these promises, but they just see it as oppressive. And so uh, after they say, okay, sure, yeah, everything the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. The covenant meal, 70 elders go up to the top of uh, Mount Sinai. They see God and they eat and they live, right? This is the covenant meal. And then, so it's like the wedding reception, right? When everybody comes together to bless the couple. And then the meeting with the architect, Moses goes up to get the plans for the sanctuary because the whole entire point of the sanctuary covenant structure is to dwell together. It's intimacy, right? The sanctuary, the purpose of the sanctuary is to restore intimacy with God. And so uh, he's meeting with the architect, but what happens as he's, Moses is up there, The bride has just said, I do, I do. And then what happens? Like two weeks later, three weeks later, they're like, well, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. There's fire up there. Maybe he got consumed. Hey, let's build a golden calf and worship it and say this is like, anyway, we're not going to get there, but this was delusional and ridiculous, but they, they adulterate right after the wedding night. Like, how would you like it if you get married and two weeks later, you don't just hear about it, but you see your beloved spouse having sex with somebody else? Because that's what they were doing. When Moses came down, they weren't just like, ha ha, golden calf, we love you, like, you're so cool. 
they were actually having sexual orgies. Like, the, this is, read the book. I think, uh, let's see if I have, I'll get to it in a minute. But the book Flame of Yahweh by Richard Davidson is all about sexuality in the Old Testament. And it's, there is no question, all scholars agree, that that's exactly what was happening. Oh, hold on, let me go back. So just to finish off, then finally, after God comes, is gracious and merciful and long-suffering, he reveals his name. He, they write two new uh, tablets with the promises on them. And the marriage is restored, and they dwell in sanctuary union. So, basically, we are the church. We are called out. We need to step up. We're called out of Babylon, the system that says you can straddle both worlds. You can have one foot in the world and fulfill the lust of the flesh, and you can have one world, one foot in the, in, in the church, come to church, you know, maybe even serve in office, And then you've got that box checked. And God's okay because he knows that, you know, you're human, you've got urges, and so it's okay. This is the whole system of Babylon. It's delusional. And what Paul says is he's like, you guys, I'm terrified. I am so afraid because the way that I'm seeing you behave, he says to the Corinthians, if somebody comes to you and preaches another Christ, another Jesus, you're going to bear it fine. You're going to be okay with it. What they, this is what the world is doing. It's presenting another Jesus. We're listening to evangelical preachers. We're listening to their music and their themes. We are being indoctrinated to follow this system. And as we will see, this lady here, who's arrayed in scarlet, so she says, hey, blood of Christ, claim, just claim the blood. There's power in the blood. Hallelujah. And then go off and do whatever you want to do because you're covered by the blood. This is what she says. And she calls herself, the purple is actually royalty. So she says, I am a queen. I am a queen. In her hand, she has the golden cup of of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication, which is pornea, porn, seduction, desire, fulfilled. Just go with your urge. On her forehead, frontal lobe. This is what she thinks about. This is where you're supposed to have self-control. Remember, that's the whole point of the forehead, is to teach you how to think rationally, how to make good decisions, how to postpone present pleasure for future gain. But on the forehead, it's mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of porn. She's the mother of porn. Like, scripture is unequivocal about this, and we need to pay attention. Um, So this is the book I was talking about, and the pattern that we see in the Old Testament is called dual harlotry. So what this means is that there's two ways. As soon as there's sexual perversion, immediately it's called adultery slash idolatry. They go hand in hand together. So the good thing is that an image appeared in heaven, a great sign, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and under her feet a crown of 12 stars on her head. This beautiful woman, this chaste uh, woman, She's clothed with the righteousness of God, the sun, and she's standing on the moon, which represents the writings of the Old Testament. Remember, this is New Testament. So the the dragon doesn't like it. He doesn't like it when we want to be clothed with the righteousness of God. So he was enraged with the woman. He is, and he came down to make war in the time of Ellen White. War, never, never has vice been so, she says, extreme and bold. Never has it reared its ugly head like it has now. This was... 1800s, guys, it's gotten way worse since the time I was a student here at the academy, and we need to do something about it. So, uh, yes, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast the testimony of Jesus, we can't just claim the blood, right? We've got it. What's the testimony of Jesus? 
Well, it's the spirit of prophecy, but it's total surrender. He said, I have come not to do my will, right? But your will, your law is within my heart. Father, your will, not mine. And they overcame him. This is the good news. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life to the death, unto the death. That means we have not sacrificed to the shedding of blood, it says in Hebrews chapter 12. We need to undergo discipline. Chapter 12 is all about discipline in order to be true children of God because God loves and rebukes, God chastens and rebukes those he loves. So uh, Ellen White says, all true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, are willing to be made willing, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims so blend our hearts and minds into conformity with his will that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. So this is like the frontal lobe and limbic system combined. Impulses back here, self-control here, right? And what God does is he, he blends it. He says, now your impulses will be to do good, to be pure, to bless others. This is what I'm going to do in you. And I just want to conclude sharing a testimony. Uh, so I'm going to give you a little bit of, of a background. Um, this is uh, confession time, testimony time. So uh, I, I have a fire, not so much anymore because God is working on me, but I was born with a fiery personality. Um, my dad's part Italian. They always said, you know, you've just got the Italian side. So my dad, one time, I was, I was barely walking and talking, and he was a pastor in Uruguay. So he leaves me in our little fiat. He goes inside to greet a pastor, and when he comes out, I'm screaming and yelling at this guy who's come up to me, right? Apparently, it was a member of the church, but I am just lashing out at him. And my dad was saying, because I was like, what, I didn't speak. What was I saying? He says, the words you knew were about excrement. So like poo-poo, that sort of thing. This is what you were telling that man. You were like just letting him have it. And apparently, I just don't like you entering my personal space. Like, this is my space, and I'm going to let you know it because justice is justice. My mom tells a story about when I was... How old was I? I think I was... Four, three or four, I was a little girl, and my brother was three years older. So I was three, he was six. And some boys came and they were roughing up my brother. They were his friends, but they were not being nice. And so he came inside crying. He's like, Mom, Mom, these guys, they're, they're you know, I'm so sad. He was crying. And I saw my brother in pain. I saw him crying. I was like, out of here. I ran outside, my mom says. I grabbed those guys. I shook them up. And I said, don't you ever... By this time, I could talk, right? So I said, don't you ever touch my brother again. And according to my mom, she says, they never did. So this is kind of my you know, sense of justice and passion and so forth. Well, fast forward, Gianluca and I are married. We have a beautiful little baby named Isabella. And unfortunately, so fortunately, because I am so happily married, but the guy that I was dating when we were watching the Seinfeld episode broke up with me. And that was devastating. You know, when you go through a breakup, it just challenges your sense of self, whether you're worthy and lovable. And Gianluca has always liked me. So I felt like he was a safe... I I can marry him because I can trust him. Well, unfortunately, that old green-eyed monster called Jealousy didn't want us to have a happy marriage. He reared his ugly head in me and that kind of shaking and intensity, that passion that I had, I assumed that he was doing this to me. I assumed that his eyes were, there was always someone who was better and he might leave me the way my boyfriend did. And so I had this fear in our relationship and I didn't realize what it was, but I just knew that every time he looked at another girl, I got livid inside and I hated it. And we were driving home from New York 
one time with her little baby in the back. And I said, you know what, this is, I, I can't deal with this. I can't live with this in our relationship. And he said, what are you talking about? He's like, I'm not doing this to you. You're doing this to me. I feel like I'm shackled. Like I can't turn in any direction. I can't do anything. And then it dawned on me, this was not something he was doing to me. This was something that was coming from the outside. I wasn't trying to do it to him either. Satan was attacking our marriage. And I needed to do something about it because it was coming from my heart. And so I got all kinds of books that talked about jealousy, like how to tame the green-eyed monster, how to... And I was reading and reading for weeks and weeks. And then one night, Jaluka was off on a business trip, and I'd put little Isabella down in her crib for her nightly, well, for, for bedtime. And then um, I lay down, and I was like, okay, I pulled out one of my books, and I was saying, okay, maybe now. Maybe I'll see something that clicks now, and maybe I'll overcome it now. And nothing. So oh, I sighed, I put back the book, and I was like, all right, well... Let's see what I can do. Um, so I opened up my Bible because it was Christmas time and I, I was going through the lesson study. And, um, oh, did we not have the... Here we go. So I opened up my Bible and I read Luke 1, 35 and 37 and the passages in between, but these are the ones I want to highlight. I read the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. For with God, nothing will be impossible. I was just reading this for a devotional, but something about those words, I thought, he's talking to me. He knows my issues. Now, you need to know this. I never thought God was a personal savior. I knew he saved everyone personally. I knew he loved the world. I was church secretary. I had gotten degrees in religion or a degree. um, And I was teaching religion at at a school, uh, comparative religions. But in my heart, I didn't think he cared personally about me. I didn't think he could talk to me. But I knelt down and I said, God, I feel like this is for me. And I sensed this, this word in my head, this, this question, what are you afraid of? What is your fear? And then I started to cry. I said, I'm afraid my husband's going to leave me for someone else and that my baby and I will be all alone. And I don't know how I'm going to take care of her by myself. And the voice said to me, in my head there was no voice. He said, don't be afraid. You will always have me. I am always going to be here for you. And that just totally shattered my world. I was there crying. And my friends who are here know every time I tell this story, I cry. I can't help but cry. But God was such a personal savior. He showed his desire for me, his epithumia, his yearning, his longing to meet my needs. And I could do nothing else but totally surrender. And Gianluca knows from that point on, jealousy was not an issue in our marriage at all. We had to deal with the the ramifications. When you overcome addiction of any kind, there are consequences. God forgives you and you can learn new patterns. But whatever's happened in community, there's going to be ramifications. But God will get us through. Our marriage is better now than it has ever been. Right, baby? Right. So so we need to ask the desire of all nations to be our driving desire. He needs to drive us. What we think is passion is nothing. We're going to have all eternity growing in passion and yearning for the Son of God to know him better, to reflect him more. We have no idea of the glories that await us but we need to ask God to show us so that we can have greater desire to serve him and to love him and to purify our hearts and to purify our communities. So delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your pure heart 
that you are purifying by reading his word. Psalm 73 is my favorite. It's the sanctuary psalm, so it's the dwelling. It's the one that talks all about God's justice and love and wanting to dwell with us in the sanctuary. It's actually the chiastic center of, according to Richard Davison, of the Old Testament and of the Psalms, right? It's 150. It's right in the middle. middle. It says, whom have I? This is the concluding part. It says, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire besides you. God is here. God is present. God is on earth. God is accessible. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God, you, Lord, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. May this be your passion as well. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, you are an awesome God. You are full of intense love, of a love that passes understanding, that wants to fulfill all our heart's desires and give us joy, life, and abundance now. Lord, whoever is listening to this and has any kind of issues, Lord, we all have issues, but with, with perhaps sexual issues or like I had jealousy or whatever it is, fits of rage, there's so many things that bind us. Lord, may you make yourself present to them uh, in the way that they need. May you take my words and help it to speak directly to their heart and to their issues. May they see you in a new light and may they worship you with more passion and determination and boldness. And Lord, all of us parents, we need pure hearts to be able to encourage our children. Help us to have compassion with our children. Help us to have boldness with our children. And help us to pray, knowing that you, they are yours, Lord. You want this more than we do. There's armies of angels that are at our disposal. May we avail ourselves of the power and may we be the change that we want to see in the world. It's not easy, but we need to do it and you will help us, Lord. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.